0: Several years back, many years ago now, we, uh, Cindy and I were looking for a new vehicle. And this, when we lived in Louisiana, we had moved from one place to another, and for a number of reasons, we needed something a little bit bigger than the vehicle that we had been using up to that time. Well, I was looking in the newspaper for a new vehicle, and I came across an ad for an Econoline Ford 150 van. Now, the van at the time I was looking at the advertisement in the newspaper was about 15 years old. Now, that's not unusual. I don't think we've really ever had a car that was less than five years old except for one. So a 15-year-old car was no big deal to us. But what was amazing, and I thought it was a typo at first, and I remember calling the ad and saying, this isn't right correct? And they said, no, no, that's right. The car was about, I don't know, 12, 15 years old, but it only had 6,000 miles on it. I thought, that's, that's astounding. That can't be right. And I called them. I said, I mean, you, you mean 60,000, right? And they said, no, no, 6,000. Well, the van became legendary. The van was known as Boyer's Bodacious Blue Bomber. The people that owned it decided to convert the inside of the van, and they kind of had a disco theme to them. So that the inside of the van was kind of coated, is probably the right word, with this shag rug that went about halfway up the sides of the van. It had sort of custom windows in the back. Now, this was all a homemade job, and they had paneling on the inside, They had special aftermarket seats that were these captain seats, and they had a bed in the back, they had a refrigerator, and actually the van was going to be used by this couple to go visit the, I believe it was the husband's mother, and she passed away, so they never drove it, and it sat up. That's why it only had 6,000 miles on it. The console in the front was this sort of padded console that came down from the ceiling, and it had an 8-track in it, and a CB. They had flared fenders on. It was really pimped out, and that's the right word. And it had this sort of thing that came down on the front. It it was incredible. It was a massive thing. And we took off some of it so it didn't look like the pastor of the church was of a nefarious occupation. And uh, we, uh, but we used it. But as we bought it, because it had set up, and those of you that understand mechanics a little bit will understand this. One of the problems was the brakes. The brakes needed to be redone, and so we got that done. But as we were driving it for a while, I began to notice that the back windshield and the back doors got this coating on them. And I couldn't figure out quite what it was, and then eventually I realized when I checked my transmission fluid and it was nearly gone, that the rear seal on the transmission, again, some of you will understand this, was leaking and blowing transmission out through the back, and it would sort of gather. And so every time I pulled into a gas station, I'd have to fill it up with gas and fill it up with transmission fluid. Well, I'm fairly mechanical. I know my way around tools. I, I know how to use a hammer. If you ever help me with a project, I'll hand you the hammer. And if you grab it in the right way, I'll know, okay, they know a hammer. A hammer has a handle on it. Most people who are you know, new to hammers kind of handle them in the middle. And you know, when I was in, in framing, they'd say, well, we'll just cut off the rest of the handle. That, that handle is long for a reason. And I know my way around tools. But the bomber needed a whole transmission job. And as I looked at it, I thought, well, that's going to be expensive. And then a friend of mine, his name was Brett, said, Keith, I'll help you. Let's, let's, put a, let's fix the transmission. He was a middle management guy for Chrysler. He had worked his way up at that time from, from being a mechanic and worked his way up. And he knew his way around cars. And, in fact, his house, when they expanded his house, most people put on a new bedroom. He put on a brand-new garage with lifts and everything So he knew his way around cars. And I remember getting in there, and I remember beginning to tear that thing down and jacking the the van up and pulling out the transmission and pulling the transmission out and taking the transmission apart. And what the problem was, because it had set up, the the shaft coming out of the back of the transmission had little pits on it, and so the seal was rubbing away, and that was causing the blowing out. So we had to put a sleeve on that on that uh, that uh, transaxle that came out. We had, to, we had to deal with all of those things. And I remember being right in the middle of the project with all this stuff laying across the garage floor and thinking, this is beyond me. There is no way I understand all of this. I'm not a mechanic. I can change oil and plugs and brakes and all of that. I don't do that anymore, but I used to. But this was beyond me. This was more than I could handle. And I remember thinking, if Brett dies, so does the bomber. It's done. Because I am not adequate for this task. But thankfully, my friend, my cohort in this endeavor knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how to put the sleeve on the, on the drive shaft. He knew how to reconfigure the transmission. He knew how to tighten the bands and do all the things that were just simply beyond me. And the adequacy for the task came not from my knowledge or my ability the adequacy for that task came from the relationship that I shared with one who knew exactly what he was doing. When we come to Second Corinthians and chapters 2 and 3, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. As you begin that passage, as you begin to read this section that began in verse 12, and you remember that Paul was waiting to hear from Titus as to how the letter that he had written to the Corinthian church had been received, whether or not they were willing to make the changes that would save them as a church. Finally, Titus shows up with the news and says, most have been receptive. Most understand that they were wrong. There is a repentance sweeping through the church. And Paul begins to respond to that. And right in the middle of this section, right in the middle of this passage... There is the central theme of everything we're going to read over the next several chapters, everything we're going to look at over the next several weeks as we work our way through the next couple of passages. And the question is found there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and the second half of verse 16 when he asks this question He says, Who is equal? To the task, who can do this? Who can handle this? Who is sufficient? The word used there is the idea of sufficient, adequate, enough. Who has enough to do this? Several years ago, you remember the, 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 the election that went around, and the word that became a big part of it was the gravitas. The seriousness, the sufficiency to handle the task that is before them. And Paul is asking the question who in the world can do this thing? Now, the question in itself has an inherent question, and that is what thing? What task? What is Paul being confronted with? What is Paul having to deal with? Where he's asking the question, who in the world can do this? And the answer that we get through this whole passage is this. You and I have a a task, a job. And that's to represent the new covenant. This new relationship that we have with God. This new relationship that we have with the Father through the Son. This new relationship that involves the presence of the Son within every single believer through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, who in the world is adequate for the task that God has given us to be his representatives in the world? Now for Paul, the task was even greater. Paul is really asking here, who in the world is adequate to be an apostle for us the question would be who in the world is adequate to really be the kind of believer that represents christ in all that we do now two weeks ago we looked at the image that paul uses and you remember there and you should begin reading in verse 12 i'm sorry verse 14 As Paul is thinking about this response through Titus that the Corinthians had given, in verse 14 he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. And you remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at the different parades and we talked about the parade in scripture. The, the first one which was that procession into Jerusalem where there was a procession of invitation and Jesus was asking the question, will you accept me as your Messiah? Will you accept me as the one sent from God? Then we looked at Revelation chapter 19, that, that procession of on to victory as the conquering army proceeds its way upon the earth. But in between, where you and I live, we're involved in that triumph parade. That parade in which God is the one who is triumphant. God is the one who has the victory. And in Rome, if you had a great military victory, you would have a triumph, a parade. And the parade would begin with trumpeters and some of the soldiers marching in the beginning of the parade. And then following them would come the captives, would come the spoils of that warfare, would come the spoils of the battle. And some of it may be captive slaves as they were marched along. Some of of it would be the gold and the the silver and the, the things that were conquered and taken from that culture. And then after that would come the one who was the victor. And Paul says, you and I are a part of that parade. But we play a very specific role. We're not the soldiers. We're not the victor. We're the captives. We're the ones who have been overcome in that victory. And Paul goes on to say, and I've got a job. My job is to spread the fragrance of God's victory. For we, are, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death. To the other we are the fragrance of life. Paul says, as an apostle, it is my job to take the scent, the incense of God's victory and spread that throughout everywhere. I am God's representative. I represent that victory. And the victory is represented by this smell, this fragrance of the incense. And if you watch Ben-Hur, and yes, I watched it last weekend. There's that scene where they march into into Rome and, and they show this one picture of these women throwing flowers. It's wonderful. Paul says... I don't throw flowers, but I carry the incense, the smell of God's victory. To some, it's the smell of death. For those who reject that victory, those who reject being a part of the captives, the result is eternal death, separation from God, Forever. But those who are captives, those who surrender to the one who is victorious, to them it is the smell of life, of eternal life, and and eternal existence with God and in relationship with him. And as Paul is thinking about that, he's saying, Who can handle that responsibility? Who can handle that job? Now, none of you here are an apostle. In fact, no one alive today is an apostle, not in that New Testament sense. as one who has seen the death and resurrection of Christ and seen his ministry and seen him resurrected and alive. We believe it. We trust it. But we're not apostles. We're not one of the twelve that the church is built upon. But we do have the responsibility of being Christ's representatives to the world. In your neighborhood, you're God's captive, you're God's servant. Yes, the word is used. you're God's slave. He's master. And it's your job in that neighborhood, in that work, in that family, with your friends, at the fishing game club where we were at yesterday fishing for trout. You are Christ's representative. And through you, the message, the the aroma of God is spread. Beloved, none of us, I think, think really serious about that, seriously about that. That's an incredible responsibility. God uses you. to impact eternally the lives of the people you come in contact with. That's an awesome responsibility. In fact, it's overwhelming. That's what Paul is saying. Who can do this? Who can handle that? Who is sufficient? I know me. I know my struggles. I know my thoughts. I know my emotions. You don't. I I know we tend to think because, you know, every preacher up here is sort of an exhibitionist. You know, there's parts of of our being that we show, we let you see, but guaranteed there are parts that only the Lord and I know. I look at my life and I say, God, y- you want to use me? Do, do, do you know how irritating, irritated I get when people cut me off in traffic? I'm not sure I'm a good representative of you as I'm yelling at my steering wheel. Do, do you know the, the selfish and self-centered thoughts that, that enter into my brain? God says, I know, but I want to use you. I've given you this task. We are God's representatives. We are his captives that spread the aroma. Not as apostles, not as apostles, but as his disciples. Now, with that in mind, we need to first understand exactly what it is we're called to do. What is it that we are representing? And this is what we represent. We represent the fact that through the death of Jesus, God has established a new covenant, a new relationship with his people. You and I enjoy something that no one understood through the whole Old Testament. Moses didn't understand it. uh, Joshua didn't understand it. Jonah didn't understand it. Isaiah didn't understand it. They understood that they were God's people. They understood that they had a relationship with him. They understood that God had chosen them. But they didn't understand that new covenant that was to come. They lived under the Old Covenant. Your Bibles are divided into two sections. What are they? The Old Testament and New Testament. The idea of Testament there is covenant. The Old Testament tells us about the Old Covenant the old way in which God was relating to man. And you know that. You've read through the Old Testament or you've seen the movie where there's you know, lots of laws, there's lots of principles, there's lots of things you need to do to show yourself as a male, as a member of that covenant that was circumcision. And you showed, you did these things to be part of the covenant. But the new covenant... It's different. In the New Covenant, you don't do to be a part of. Rather, you do because you are already a part of the New Covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with his people, Israel. That's what the Ten Commandments, the the, the movie, is about. That was the other weekend movie that I watched for a while. My favorite scene is they're about to go across the Red Sea and there's this perfect Cecil B. DeMille scene where as the water is parting and coming apart, there's these three women on the rock and they're like this. You know, and they're, they're sort of watching this incredible thing going on. That whole movie is focusing on this event That God made a covenant, a promise, established a relationship with his people Israel. And there are lots of passages that talk about it. The whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, speaks about its establishment. The rest of the Bible speaks about Israel's struggle to live out the implications of that covenant. But there's a way that this is described that's important for the passage here in 2 Corinthians. In Exodus 31 and verse 18, as Moses is talking about that old covenant, he says this. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony, the, the Ten Commandments. You know, that, that great scene in the Ten Commandments where the, the flame comes down and, you know, thou shalt not, and he writes on the, and then there's that big, you know, explosion and Moses walks down with the two tablets and, you know, he finds the, the, the golden calf and throws down the tablets and God sends them back up the mountain and this time he has to chisel them. All of that is this. But it's described in a cold, cold way. It says that it's the tablet of the testimony, the tablets of stone. And that becomes an an important kind of image of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. It was written on stone, cold, hard stone by the finger of God. It was exterior to them. If you wanted to obey the law, you had to go out of yourself and read them and come to understand them. And so when you look at this new covenant, I mean, sorry, you look at the old covenant, the old covenant was given to Moses on tablets of stone and and the revelation that God gave to Moses. But here's the important thing about the the old covenant. The old covenant was external, and it led to death. The Old Covenant didn't bring life. The Old Covenant showed you just how far we fail to live up to God's standard of holiness. Pick any of the commandments and we've failed them. And if you fail one in the slightest way, you might as well have broken all of them. I'm not saying go out and do all that stuff. But what I'm saying is before God, you are unacceptable. So God established this system of killing lambs and killing goats and killing oxen and, and spreading the blood around to demonstrate just how serious this was. But the law was powerless. It didn't change me. It provided a means by which I could understand what God expected. But it didn't give me the power to obey it. It didn't give me the strength to obey it. It didn't change me. And so the law became a tattletale. Look what you did. Now, the problem wasn't the law. Problem was me. So Hebrew says day after day after day after day after day for thousands of years. Lambs and goats and oxen and dove were slaughtered in order to cover up temporarily in the eyes of man, the sin that they were committing. Beloved, I'm so glad I don't live under the old covenant for a number of reasons. One, because I like lambs and don't want to see their throats cut all the time. Two, because I really like shrimp and I couldn't eat shrimp and I love a good pork barbecue. You couldn't eat those under the old covenant. And also because That sense of guilt before God was a heavy reality in the Old Testament. God said, We need something new. We're going to establish something different. Now that man understands they can't live up to my holiness, God says, Let's establish a new covenant. And God promised to establish a new covenant with his people. A new way of relating. A, a covenant is the means by which we relate to God. In the Old Testament, God chose a people and, and they to be a part of that covenant, to stay in the land, they needed to live in a certain way. The new covenant is different. The language of the new covenant is found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and basically all of the rest of that chapter from 31 on. And and I break it up, just kind of make it a little bit more understandable. But the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new testament, a new way of relating with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And thank be to God to all people. That was the mystery of the new covenant that even the Old Testament didn't understand. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their minds. Now notice, and write it on their hearts. Not stone, but flesh. Not rock, but the heart. God's law now is written inside. There is something within me that, that allows me, that enables me to live in a way that represents God's presence in my life. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Now, notice, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness. And will remember their sins no more. God says there's a difference coming. There's a new covenant. Well, there is forgiveness of sins, but... Even more in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, the word new covenant is not used, but that covenant is described. And this is the really important passage when understanding 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3. I think this is the passage that Paul had in mind as he's writing this. He talks about the heart of stone and he talks about the heart of flesh and he talks about the coming of the spirit and he talks about the, the forgiveness that we have. And as you read down, through here in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when you begin there in verse, in verse 4, where he says, Such confidence as this, is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything, but our competence, competence comes from God. He made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the inscription, the, the, the scribing is the idea there. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's talking about that change. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. No longer just simply given, but given with the Spirit. That's what Paul is thinking of as he's writing this. And he says, you and me have the responsibility of demonstrating that new covenant to the people we come in contact with to cast the aroma. The new covenant is a new covenant that promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is within us. And as we continue to read through through 2 Corinthians 3, we'll learn more and more about this. But why is it that you and I have a longing to obey God? Why is it that God's work in us to make us more and more in an image of Christ so that people see more and more Jesus within us? Why is it that there is an ability to walk in obedience to God because of who I am? No, it is because God's Spirit lives within me and His work is doing his work. So that when I hear a message, an inadequate message, God can take that and use it to change my thinking, to change the way I act, to change the way I speak, to change the way I I make my decisions. God's spirit indwells every single believer. And I know that you are in the process of change. Why? Not because of who you are but because the Spirit is within you. Changing you. Changing your thinking. Changing your perspective. And through that, changing your responses. The new covenant creates a new heart in those who receive it. I am changed, and I am changing, and I will be changed. And that's all the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the tenses of the verbs that are used here, we're not going to get into it. There's a technicalness to it. But there's the idea of this is a continual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He changes me at the very moment I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am made a child of God. I am made a follower of Christ. I am made part of the new covenant. God's Spirit indwells me at that very moment. He is changing me now. Thank God I am not the man I was 30 years ago. Thank God that he is in the process of changing me. But I have a long way to go yet. If this is perfection, I made this. Now, thankfully, I made this. It used to be this. But God will change me. There's a moment, there's a time when I will finally see my Lord face to face and at that moment, I will be like him. All of the sins, struggles, all of the selfishness are gone. It's God's work of the Spirit. How are we adequate? Because of who we are? No. Because God is working through us. And all of that was established at the death of Christ. Two weeks from now, we're going to have communion in the evening. And at some point, one of us is going to stand up and say the words of Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I established that new relationship, that new covenant, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who believe, the certainty that their sins are forgiven, the certainty that eternity is theirs, the certainty that the relationship that God has with them as a father cannot be violated. How did it happen? Tetelestai. It is finished. And at the moment Christ died, that new covenant was established. And it's ours to enjoy, but also to represent. And if you're like me and thinking about that responsibility, it causes me to say who is worthy? Who is adequate? Who can do this? Who can do this task? Well, Paul answers that question. And his answer is this. Nobody. And you go, thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. And then he says, and everyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. As Paul is answering that question, he he primarily answers it in verse 4 when he says, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God, not that we are capable, confident. I can't do it. But God is capable through me. He can make the impact. He can make the difference. He's the guy that knows how to build the, translation, the transmission and make it happen. God is the source of our adequacy for the task. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Those are great spiritual religious words. But what does that mean? Well, the first mean, thing it means is this that God's tasks that He gives to us are usually overwhelming our, our resources and our abilities. I remember when my children were born and I'd hold them for, at the, fir, for the very first time and look down at them and think, oh, you poor child, you have me as your father. I, can, I don't know I can handle this. Every time I get up to preach, I think, oh, you poor congregation. You have me as your pastor. Who can handle this? I'm not sufficient. I can't change your hearts. I can't change your thinking. I can't change your behavior. As a, as, a, as a spouse, as a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. <laughs> Forget that one. Not in the sense of dismissing, but in the sense of, Lord, I fall so short. What do we do? Well, Paul answers that. And he does it as he develops the argument through this passage. And he basically says this. First, God accomplishes his work through our faithfulness. Our choosing to be obedient as we best understood understand that obedience to be. As I come to understand what it means to represent Christ here, to take and choose to do as best I can at that, to be faithful. To be obedient as I can in this situation. I, I can't change your hearts. I can't change your minds. I can't change your perspective and your convictions. What can I do? I can be faithful. I can spend the time in God's word. I can spend the time thinking through the message. I can spend the time putting out the, the outline. I can do those things. And then say, God, the rest is you. I can be faithful. I can be faithful as a father to pray for my children, to to seek those opportunities when my words can speak into a situation and and make a change or or confound or confuse in a way that says, wait a minute, that's not what I expected. What do you mean? Or I can, as a father, choose to spend that time I have with my, my children and to make sure that it's a quality time. Not that I'm staring at, you know, whatever's important to me, but I'm spending the time with them. I can be faithful in those ways. I can be faithful with my spouse to to listen and to to seek to understand. I can be faithful in those ways. I can be faithful as a neighbor and seek to find ways to minister and encourage my neighbor and my neighborhood. I can be faithful as an employee to put the time in that I need to put in to, to be honest in the work that I'm doing. I can do those things that God calls me to do. Why? Because of who I am? No, because the Holy Spirit is within me. And then God takes that and uses that. I love those that ch- teach children's church and those that teach, you know, discovery class to the children and the adults. But, you know, to the children, you, sometimes you think, what good is this? God says, be faithful. Spend the time preparing. Be creative. You are pouring your life and God's truth into these children. You have no idea how God may choose to use it. We serve, and as we are faithful. God uses that. That's what Paul says when he says, you know, we are faithful. We did this in a way that was faithful. Verse 17 of chapter 2, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we speak before you with sincerity, with honesty. We expose it to the sunlight and let people see the truth. God says he is our adequacy as he legitimizes uh, legitimizes our work through the impact of the spirit on others. As you pray for others and see God answer prayer. As you teach that child and see the understanding come. As you serve at at Booth Elementary and see God use that to declare my people care about this community. Choosing to be faithful, not perfect. Perfect. And sincere and faithful. And Paul says, God simply requires that faithfulness. Now, it's contrasted. In that verse that we looked at in verse 17, he says, there are, oops, the other way. There are those, one more time, there are those that are hucksters. They're just involved in this to get the acclaim, to Get the money, to get the prestige. Paul says, don't be like that. Rather, be sincere and honest and loving and caring and open and vulnerable. And God will use your faithfulness to spread his aroma. Throughout the people you come in contact with. I end with this. Paul in 1 Corinthians, as he's describing his ministry, he doesn't say, regard me as a great preacher. He doesn't say, regard me as a great apostle. He doesn't say, regard me as a great tent maker. He doesn't say, regard me as a great missionary. This is what he says. This is what I want people to think about my life. So then men ought to regard us as servants. As those who are willing to serve others in sincerity, in honesty, and trust it with the secret things of God, the aroma, now is required of those who are given a trust that they be faithful. The NIV has it that they be that they prove themselves faithful. God calls us not to the results, but to faithfulness through the empowerment of the Spirit to be his representatives to a dying world and to represent life available in Christ. Who is capable? No one. And yet, everyone who faithfully lives a life of service to God and to others, empowered through their relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the challenge we find in this passage. Father, may we be those who faithfully represent the new covenant, the relationship we have with you. Thank you that we don't do to get. We do because we have. Father, thank you that forgiveness is ours through the death of your son and through his blood that paid the complete penalty. Father, thank you that we can be faithful. And thank you that you use that faithfulness to accomplish your task in our lives and in the lives of others. And we pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus.